welcome back to episode 29 of the Game Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Poe. This week, there's lots and lots of numbers for this week's news, so let's just get right into it. First news item, Embracer acquires even more studios yet again. This was an article from GamesIndustry.biz by Maria D'Alessandri. Embracer Group has announced the acquisition of eight studios for approximated $313 million. An additional consideration of up to $232 million will be paid around uh, should the studios meet agreed milestones over a period of uh, up to eight years. The studios acquired are Crazy Labs, Ghost Ship Games, Easy Trigger, Force Field, Digix, Art, Slipgate Ironworks, 3D Realms, and Grim Frost. The announcement said that these acquisitions should contribute to Embracer's sales in a range of $232 million to $348 million in the next financial year ending March 31st, 2023. Crazy Lab's acquisition was presented as the quote-unquote most impactful in terms of its future contribution to Embracer's sales and operational earnings before interest and taxes. The acquisition of the mobile games publisher should be completed by September 30th, 2021. The announcement clarified that Amsterdam-based VR and AR studio Forcefield was acquired by Vertical Games specifically. Vertical is owned by Coke Media, which is owned by Embracer. This acquisition doubles Vertical's internal development capacity, the announcement said. Digix Art will also come under the Coke Media banner, while Slipgate Ironworks is being acquired by Sabre. Ghost Ship Games will act as a sister company to Danish studio Coffee Stain, making the latter quote, an indie operating group with emphasis on continued organic growth as well as M&A, uh, end quote, the announcement said. Easy Trigger will come under Coffee Stain label as well as a new internal studio. Once again, this just, this is just basically Embracer continuing their trend of spending God knows how much money on a bunch of game studios, you know? What's interesting is that they seem to be having a system where they, you know, where acquired studios will live under different banner groups of Embracer. For example, it was Coffee Stain that published Ghost Ship Games' uh, Deep Rock Galactic, so there is already a pretty good working uh, relationship established there. By the way, you guys should all play Deep Rock Galactic. It is such a, like, a chill, like, fantastic game with this awesome gameplay loop, um, you know, uh, filled with, like, the, you know, if you want the Minecraft stuff, there is, you want shooting, there is, you know, that kind of stuff. I first played uh, this game on uh, Xbox Game Pass PC, but then I bought it for Steam, and I'm playing it on Steam right now. I have over 50 hours so far. Also, the reason why is because my Game Pass PC basically just stopped working because Windows updates, I don't know, it just break the thing. So no more Game Pass experience, unfortunately. And yeah, they really need to fix that. I, I did have an episode on my experience with Game Pass PC, but yeah. So second news item, we have new information on the PSVR 2. This was reported by PSVR without parole. The information came from Sony's private uh, conference briefing that is briefing developers about its upcoming VR headset for the PS5. The video claims that the PSVR 2 is codenamed NGVR, which stands for Next Gen VR. It will have HDR OLED displays, resolution at 2000 by 2040 per eye, FOV of 110, which is more than PSVR, 
Controllers will be packaged with each headset and feature touch sensors. Launch details coming early 2022. Sony is also interested in AAA hybrid games that can be played both with and without VR, similar to RE7 and Hitman 3, for example, instead of those VR experiences like the Batman and Spider-Man ones. This is all very, very good news for me. I'm expecting that the device will cost more than the PSVR, given that the hardware specs is quite a bit more advanced, and it should be maybe roughly around 400 to 500 US dollars, which sounds about right to me. Wouldn't get to like the $600 point since that would cost more than the PSVR, uh, PS5 itself. It will be comparable or even better than the Vive and Quest, but I'm definitely expecting it less than the Index, which makes sense since the Index is over $1,000, and I'm hoping for backwards compatibility with PSVR. But if not, at uh, the very least, please have remasters come out, I hope. Uh, this AAA hybrid game model of releasing games will benefit gamers to have another reason to gravitate towards the PS5 consoles, if they are also interested in VR, that is. But I think that the Resident Evil 7 release with VR really proved it to Sony that it is worth it, and I'm guessing that they definitely saw an uptick in sales of VR when this was done. Uh, personally, I've heard a lot about RE7 VR, but not much about Hitman 3 VR mode. All of this is interesting nonetheless, and I'm hoping to hear more concrete details next year and perhaps a release of the device towards the end of next year if possible. Next up, we have a few financial reporting from the Japanese companies, and I'll start off with Sony here because we just did the PSVR 2. For their game and network services during fiscal year 2021, Q1, that is April to June 2021, their revenue is up 2% year over year, which was driven by an increase in sales of PS5s and positive impact on foreign exchange rate. The downside was a decrease in sales of non-first-party titles, so basically less game sales. On the operating income or the profit side, they are down significantly, down 32.6% year-over-year. By the way, the foreign exchange rate definitely helps soften the blow for this one. So this was, again, driven by a decrease in game sales, also due to the releasing of the PS5 at a loss, which they, of course, would eat the cost in order to get the consoles out to the gamers' hands. Increase in expenses and such effects from the pandemic that caused any more logistical costs. A breakdown of Sony's game and network services division by segment is that the hardware is now accounted for 20% of revenue due to the PS5 sold, and it was 9% last year. Accessory sales has also increased as well. Subscription sales also at its highest point ever. PS Total PS Plus subscribers was 46.3 million during the quarter. Um, up from 45 million at the same point last year, but down from 47.6 million in the prior quarter. The largest impact was more so on the software and add-on sales, as well as active users. Active users in the PS PlayStation ecosystem were 104 million, down from 114 million at the same point last year. So basically less people playing games right now. Games analyst Daniel Maud commented on its it is unclear how much is pandemic boost related and how much is due to a slower transition to the PS5. My guess is the pandemic boost though. Um, this was all within expectation, but what's interesting with the PS5 and its strength is that the PS5 disc version console itself is already selling enough 
that in its first year it is already at a profit right now versus the cost it uh, required to produce them. Because usually, you know, they would just eat the cost first until there's enough units produced and sold to break even eventually and then profit. Game sales down from last quarter uh, because of the pan- due to the pandemic boost differences, which I've covered extensively on this podcast already. One last thing is that Sony said that it has secured the parts to build approximately 14.8 million PS5 units this fiscal year for the total of 22.6 million by March 31st, 2022. This is slightly ahead of the PS4 and the same time frame, 22.4 million. So hopefully gamers will be expecting to be able to have an easier time picking up a PS5 soon. Next up, let's just talk about Nintendo and how they are, how much they are just killing it still. The Nintendo Switch has now sold 89.04 million units as of June 30, 30th, 2021. OG Switch accounts for 73.2 million, and Switch Lite accounts for 15.84 million, which in total is 89.04 million. This is after selling 4.45 million in the first fiscal quarter ending June 2021. It means this has now officially surpassed the PlayStation 3. Sony's 2006 console was last time counted at 87.4 million and is on track to surpass the Wii, which is at 101.63 million and the PS1, which is at 102.49 million by the end of this year. It's crazy. It's selling faster than the Wii and the PS4 and PS2. When launch times are aligned, although I doubt it'll ever surpass PS2 because PS2 was selling for like 20 years or something like that. (laughs) And it has 154 million. Well, you know, who knows though. Anyways, Nintendo's earnings for Q1 fiscal year 2021, which is April to June 2021. Revenue is 2.95 billion, which is, uh, you know, 9.9% decreased year over year. Uh, operating profit at 1.09 billion, which is 17.3% decrease year over year. Like Sony, the foreign exchange rate did help to soften the blow a bit here. Again, you know, first off, no pandemic boost. Uh, that's gone. Hardware-wise, OG Switch shipments were higher than this than same period last year, but they had lower shipments and lower demand for the Switch Lite. Also, in terms of games. They didn't have a Animal Crossing this year, and in general, they really much didn't didn't have any games to show at all uh, this year as well. Games analyst Daniel Mod commented that even though Monster Hunter Rise did well, it is a third-party title, and therefore Nintendo does not earn the same amount it would for third first-party titles. Okay, and I might as well just tack on some Square Enix numbers and the EA's conference call summary. So for Square Enix side, fiscal year 2022 Q1, sales rose 2% while operating income declined 29%. Digital entertainment segment dipped 6% on higher comp last year due to uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake launch. Total unit sales reached 9.88 million for the quarter ending June 21st. Sorry, June 2021. Compared to 19.73 million this time last year, downloads represent 82%, though declined 52% year-over-year. Physical sales showed more resilience in that regard, down 35%. 
Basically, they are being carried by Final Fantasy XIV right now, and they have said that the activity for the game is doing very good, and the subscriber numbers have actually increased. Now, for EA, um, during their conference call, they said Mass Effect Legendary Edition performed well above expectation, will continue to invest in Jedi Fallen Order franchise, Battlefield 2042 was the most discussed new game during June. Trailers received 210 million views across all channels. EA said that they have plans to bring Need for Speed back, and this would probably include the Need for Speed mobile game, which is in development at Tencent in addition to a new console game, and nothing about Dead Space Remake has been announced. EA also plans to focus on expanding its mobile capabilities and offerings. Glue plus Metalhead plus Playdemic plus Codemasters uh, will be able to enhance core sports games, casual sports games, and general casual game lineups. They see a large opportunity for growth in mobile games area. EA says that response contribution through Apex Legends has totaled nearly $2 billion in the two years timeline time frame. In aggregate, the company has seen strong engagement across the gaming over the past year, even with opening up coming forward um, because of its focus on experience plus social elements and network. Okay, and that is it for the news segment this week. We're going to take a very quick break before we heading into the topic of the week. Now, since you saw the title of this episode, you might be wondering why am I bring back the topic of the Vita? You might be saying you know why it didn't work well. There's reasons A, B, C, and D, etc. I actually think now has never been a better time to dig up this old fossil of a topic and discuss it again in light of all the renewed interest in the world that it seems to have on the handheld gaming devices once again. And no, this isn't just about Nintendo Switch. But now we have the Switch Lite, which I can make the argument that's pretty much like the Vita's cousin. We also have the PC market leader Valve coming out with the Steam Deck. And just last week, this little company called Panic opened their pre-orders for their really cool and cute handheld gaming device, the Playdate. And guess what? They sold 20,000 units in 17 minutes, which was their, you know, just their 2021 batch. In reality, they sold way more. Now, I have my pre-order. I got my pre-order since I couldn't help myself when I saw what they're doing. And really, it, it made me think of my GBSP, which was probably my favorite handheld. Of course, I will be giving my opinion of it when I receive mine. Unfortunately, though, I didn't get it in the 2021 batch. So it'll just have to be sometime down the line in 2022, hopefully. But the point is that the future of gaming is so often unpredictable and I bet Sony never would have figured that the handheld industry do indeed have like this pretty bright future for those who didn't who do know how to navigate it. One of the biggest reasons for Vita's failure, cited by one the one and only Shue Yoshida, was that the mobile gaming market has devoured the growth in the handheld gaming market. And sure, back then the atmosphere for handhelds were heavy, with all the analysts saying that you know, the same thing at the same exact point in time, you know, how basically the mobile gaming market is going to dominate everything and then uh, handheld market is just pointless. Hindsight 2020, though, we now see that even when the mobile game market is now bigger than it ever was, gaming in general 
for consoles, PCs, uh, handhelds, etc., have also been growing bigger and bigger. We now realize that uh, gaming isn't a zero-sum game. In fact, the pie does grow larger and everyone can share. But even without this hindsight, the Vita's cousin at the time, the Nintendo 3DS, which, by the way, also had a rocky start, managed to turn the boat around and thrive under this intense environment with the mobile gaming narrative biting its ankles at every step of its way. Not to mention the mobile market was very much less mature than it is now, and having a handheld gaming device with physical button buttons were still the superior way to play games back then still. And even now, I would argue. So what were the real reasons I can pinpoint that really did kill off the Vita for good? Let's get the first one out of the way, but really, the Vita's timing couldn't have been worse, and we just talked about how handheld gaming interest has now turned around. Granted, a lot of factors are part of it, such as the Nintendo Switch, which wouldn't have been made unless, you know, they failed on the Wii U, and the pandemic boosting in gaming in general. The Vita was just ahead of its own time, I think, too good for itself, and what it should have represented, which was, you know, being this premium handheld gaming device. So timing-wise, the Vita was dealt a bad hand from the start, and you can't really blame that on anything or anyone else. The next reason is being of its hardware and memory. Hardware-wise, the Vita is among the best. The OLED OG model not only sports the premium high build quality look, but also, but that it actually feels that way in the hands as well. One thing every owner of the Vita would praise wholeheartedly was its hardware. It's just too bad that the hardware was the reason for it being priced so high. At an initial price of $250, it definitely lived up to its premium name. The Nintendo 3DS at the time also ran for the similar cost, which as you know, suffered at launch just as well for its higher asking price. However, Nintendo had the foresight to drop the price in less than six months after release. Sony, meanwhile, took years to do so when they made that LCD screen version of the Vita. The sticker price, while certainly is high and would most definitely dissuade the price-sensitive crowd, what really irked all consumers of this device was insanely priced proprietary memory cards. Now, the Vita itself only has storage memory enough for its operating system, any updates uh, and updates, which means you are pretty much required to purchase a memory card on top of the console itself in order to start playing games. And back then, Sony's proprietary memory for 32 gigabytes ran for a thousand, uh, sorry, a hundred dollars when any other memory card for 32 gigabytes ran for around $20. This in itself, I can see kills any enthusiasm for the system being truly popular or adoptable. The other side of the hardware is software, and of course, we need to talk about how sad the game's library for the Vita was at. The promise of obtaining high fidelity graphics on the machines prevented so many games from truly thriving on the device. AAA quality development for the device was too costly, especially for the multi-platform development side, and even when development for these AAA exclusive games happened, they were noticeably smaller in scope than their console console contemporaries. Not to mention the touchscreen on the back gimmick was severely left unrealized for the most part and then just added even more costs 
for the de for those developers who tried their best to design their game for it. In the end, the device was regulated to indies and visual novels. The Vita was advertised for an older population, and the 3DS didn't run into the same problem since they are Nintendo, and so it makes sense to target children first. The story of software is very different for the uh, 3DS side, and by that I just I mean just the fact that Pokemon lives on the handheld devices there ensures that the system will also sell that to that huge crowd there. On top of that, when Nintendo realized the issue and lowered the price of the 3DS, they also poured a lot of money into developing more games, using their vast AAA franchise and IPs and characters to make games there, something that Sony themselves didn't see doing, and also they don't have those, you know, frankly speaking, they don't have those iconic characters or game franchises at the time to rival Nintendo. But then I suppose that's what happens when the company that made the device decides to not give it the full support it should have been given before really deciding if it should die. Sony internally had already given up. They didn't think it was worth fighting for, which was the final nail in the coffin as to why the device really died. Need I remind you, Sony was the one who catastrophically messed up the launch of the PS3, and but eventually they were able to bring that dead horse back to life. They could have done the same for the Vita if they just put in, in some of that determination for the device besides just the launch time. So while I know Sony isn't concerning handhelds at the moment since you know they are focused on VR stuff, which I am very much on board with by the way, I would still like to think that perhaps in the far future, you know, they would see that this market is profitable and worth a renewed effort on their part and bring back support for their next version of the handheld. But now that I say that out loud, I think that's probably not going to happen because I do know they're also trying to expand into the mobile part. So maybe they'll just make their mobile side good enough and, you know, attach like, put out more accessories like the backbone and stuff like that. Who knows? But anyways, that is the end of this episode 29 of the podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you wish to follow me, you can find me at GameBizPod on Twitter. Tune in next week for another, and I'll see you later. Bye.